Claire's going to read our scripture for us this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's, uh, one of Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6, 6 through 15. Let's listen for the word of the Lord. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they've received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we want to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would be a brother or sister. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, I grew up in a weird family. Now, that's probably not shocking to a lot of people already. But if there's one thing that the Nichols love to do, it's to laugh. Um, usually it's with and at one another. But as a group, my family, man, we're a lot of fun to be around. Um, we're different but we're a lot of fun. When we're together, we seem to find things, or maybe better put, things find us, that almost demand, um, well, a laugh or two, a humorous attention. Uh, from a great uncle, World War II vet, who slipped a profanity in the middle of a Christmas Eve service, that was fun, to my mom telling of my baby sister and little cousin ice skating for the first time, we seem to find and retell stories. And when we do, someone is going to usually end up crying with laughter. It's just what we do. We're weird. We're wired differently. And you know what? We're okay with it. We really are. It's one of the things that I love the most about my family. We love life. We find joy that seems to be scattered everywhere around us. And I feel like my mom specifically raised me with this, I'm going to call it a sense of awe, a sparkle and a laugh that is just everywhere and that can be found everywhere. We generally don't take ourselves too seriously. It doesn't mean that we, don't, we can't be serious, just that even in the midst of serious times, we try and find a way to enjoy or laugh with somebody else. Now, throughout my life, we've been a family that latches on to certain things, and we tend to drain every last ounce of joy out of it. We find these all over the places, in airports and in grocery stores, and definitely in commercials on TV. And as a kid, one of our favorites was the Wendy's commercial with the little old ladies. Do you remember it already? I can still picture it, three of them. They're standing at the counter with their Sunday best. There's this huge bun that is on the counter in front of them, and they are talking, that's a big bun. They lift the top, and they are astonished. And then the one, remember with the little frilly around her neck, she says at the top of her lung, where's the beef? <laughs> now, I remember 
As a kid, my mom cackling about that commercial. Every time it came on, she laughed. The coup de grace of this commercial, though, in my family was when we went to a pretty fancy restaurant after church one Sunday. We, too, were all dressed well, and my grandmother, my Puritan grandmother, shocked us all. The waiter comes down. He puts the plate in front of my sister and myself. I'm actually behaving at this point for once. The dish is set there, and Nani says this, looks at the plate, looks at the waiter, looks back, looks at us, and then says, where's the beef? I can't tell you how hard we laughed. We didn't know, the, the poor waiter, he didn't know whether to come or go. My mom almost fell out of her chair, and my poor dad just put his head down and went, what am I doing with these people? My grandmother sat there with this triumphant grin on her face because she knew she had won the day. Now, what does this have to do with this reading or this sermon this morning? Not much. I just thought it was funny. No, actually it does. It speaks pretty loudly to the idea of this nope statement that we're looking at this morning. How many of you ever heard someone say, God helps those who help themselves? Show of hands. There was a Barna or a Gallup poll done not too long ago that asked people if this was a biblical statement. And do you know something over 60% of the American population believe that it is scripture? Guess what? It's not. It's not in the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't say it. Neither did David or any of the prophets. It's not part of the Sermon on the Mount. And you didn't hear it at the Last Supper. That phrase ain't in there. Nope. As best we know, the saying goes back to a Greek myth. There was a man who was driving his wagon across the countryside and it began to rain. And instead of stopping, he continued to go on and his cart got stuck in the mud. As this road now is impassable, the man cries out and he says, Come down, O mighty Hercules, and rescue me. And to his amazement, Hercules showed up. But he does not lift the cart. He looks at the man and he says to him, the gods are willing to help, but only those who help themselves. So I guess you could say a god said this statement, but certainly not ours. Since Hercules, the statement has been shared by countless leaders across time, including uh, Benjamin Franklin, who included it in Poor Richard's Almanac. And if it was good enough for old Ben, well, then it must be good enough for all of us. And it has now become a significant piece of our American culture, our very lifestyle. We tend to elevate and highlight the self-made man, the self-made woman in our culture, don't we? We love the stories of rags to riches. We flock to see the underdog stories. Someone who has had to pull themselves out of some pit or some unfortunate situation. Even in the church. We love a good, full redemption story. I remember as a kid going when the missionaries would come and they'd have the, the carousel projector. Remember that? Before ProPresenter and PowerPoint? Click, 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 click. Hearing the stories of people finding Jesus in the darkest of jungles. We love redemption stories where drug dealers who are at the end of their rope meet Jesus and now they're successful preachers or motivational speakers. We love these conversion stories that involve the very worst sins turned into the very best of people. These are those stories that motivate us and compel us. They encourage us. They're kind of like self-help books that give us a sense of you can do it. 
Speaking of self-help, have you been to a bookstore recently and just seen how many shelves are filled with these things? They're all over the place, each and every one of them offering an insight on how we can make it, each one saying, you, you can do it. Many of our favorite cliches in our culture are self-help mantras that invite us to stand and go for it. What's Nike's? Just do it. Home Depot and Lowe's. I was at Lowe's yesterday, and everywhere around Lowe's, they say, hey, you can do it. You can be your own handyman. Mm -mm. <laughs> um, watch television shows. I saw Emeril Lagasse yesterday telling me that if I bought this certain pot, I could cook just like him. Mm -mm. <laughs> Ever had a coach, football, baseball, basketball, softball, try and inspire you with something like, if it's to be, then it's up to me? Y'all have heard me quote him before, but author and teacher Dallas Willard says something that might make many of us who have that it's up to me complex a little bit uncomfortable. Dallas says our mantra as followers of Jesus isn't, is, isn't if it's up to me, if it's got to be, it's up to me. But instead, you don't have to make it happen. Now, when I first heard Dallas say that, I have to tell you, I was horrified and relieved in the same breath. I told you all last week, hi, my name's Jim, and I'm a recovering control freak. For the longest time, I lived with this idea that I've got to be the one to solve the problem. I was convinced that I needed to be in the big conversations because at the end of the day, it, whatever it was, was going to be my responsibility, my, my fault, my joy, my success, my rear on the line if things don't go well. This nope statement is one of the hardest ones for me to deal with. Do you know that, that living with that kind of pressure is pretty exhausting? Some of you who have that same problem are going, mm-hmm. I'm guessing a lot of us have that mentality. Because at the end of our day, at the end of the day, this is what our culture says is the way to be. We can do it ourselves. We reward that behavior. We depend on it to make a lot of things in our society and life happen. But do you know some truth? Want to know some truth this morning? That's not real. It's a trap that leads to a place of burnout and anxiety galore. It leads to no sleep. It leads to health issues. And it leads to broken relationships. See, underneath God helps those who help themselves is a shaky bedrock or a foundation of what I call yuiness. In his excellent book, The Me I Want to Be, author and pastor John, John Ortberg states that becoming the yuiest version of yourself is God's actual plan for your life. When God invites us to be like Jesus, we're not to start walking around in white robes and blue sashes. We're called to let the person of Jesus bring fuller, renewed, and deeper life into the person that we truly are. To be the version of ourself God dreamt of when you were formed in your mother's womb. That's the youiest you you can be. But becoming the Jesus-soaked you isn't about you. <laughs> The you that is the shaky foundation of helping yourself isn't going to get it done. The truth is you and I can do very little, if anything, at all on our own. James Bryan Smith says it takes a tremendous amount of hubris or pride to think that I did it on my own. Sorry, Frank Sinatra fans. Doing it my way, not really truthful, not really realistic. 
Our very presence owes its existence to somebody else. Parents, as infants, we're fed, we're clothed, we're birthed, we're changed. Housing, education, and opportunities are all presented to us by somebody else. Sorry, friend, no matter how you spill it, you didn't do it all on your own. You didn't make it happen. Even the most self-made person has to admit that at some point something was gifted to them. You and I don't have the kind of control that says, I can do it on my own. As much as I like to try and fool myself that I do. The idea that we can is both dangerous and deadly. Not only do you not have what it takes to make it happen on your own, you just can't do it. Well, thanks, Jim. This is so motivational. I really appreciate your word this morning. I was so helping to get this today. There's good news. Let me share it with you. One of our favorite words, my favorite words, we say it each and every week, probably multiple times on a Sunday, is grace. In Greek, the word is charis or kara, and it comes from the root of gift. Grace is a divine favor that's been granted and given to us freely. It's not earned. It can't be bought or bartered for. It's something that is neither deserved nor anticipated, but grace is still given. The grace of birth, the grace of our next breath. Breathe it in, friends. That was a gift. It's all free, all unwarranted. And that grace thing, man, does it make an important appearance in our life with God. Our redemption, our forgiveness, our new life, our eternity. Guess what? It's all a gift of grace given to us. And while we do nothing to earn this grace, there is an expectation that we will do something with that grace. Again, Dallas Willard says this, We can do nothing without God, but if we do nothing, it will be without God. I'll say that one again because it's just that good. We can do nothing without God, but if we do nothing, it will be without God. We join, friends, in the work of grace. We join in the active hands and feet work of God as we rely on him and walk with him. See, this is exactly what's happening to the church at Thessalonica. That we read about just a little bit ago. When Paul writes this letter, Thessalonica is one of the first cities that Paul reached out to in Europe. It was a very large and metropolitan area. It was extremely wealthy. It was very comfortable. It was a major trade hub for the empire. It linked east and west, and it was a city with people who were very proud of themselves and proud of their accomplishments. Look what I did was kind of their motto. But the city also became a real hub for Christianity. After Paul founded the church and left to move on to another city, confusion began to take place in that community. There was a very real belief uh, at that time that the second coming of Jesus was going to happen within their lifetime. Now, 2,000 years later, we can go, well, they missed that. <laughs> but many were so convinced of this imminent return of Jesus that there were folks who were quitting their jobs, selling their homes, and sitting on beach chairs waiting to watch the downfall of all the sinners and the return of the Lord. We might say today that some of them felt a certain level of entitlement to being served and cared for in the midst of their holy waiting. Some of them actually believed that others should feed and provide for them as they waited. Paul got wind of this, and you know what his response was? Nope. <laughs> 
Paul reminded his dear Thessalonians that while he was with them, he worked. He says, imitate us and stay away from those who were idle. Did you catch that word? Paul gives them a command. Those who are unwilling to work will not get to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to eat. It's one of my favorite pastimes. When Paul, what Paul calls idleness is often called in other translations, laziness. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon's writings, we are told to take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn, learn from their ways and become wise. See, for Solomon, working hard was part of wisdom. And wisdom in the ancient world was often associated with the very essence of who God was and is. To be lazy was to resist the God-given abilities and opportunities presented. To be lazy was to leave to somebody else what God invites you and I to be a part of. This passage from Thessalonians is the closest thing we have to this nope statement that God helps those who help themselves. And quite frankly, it's not even really that close. I want to invite us to look at one other area that might tie this up for us. In 1 Corinthians, we find Paul teaching to another one of his church, another church that's capable of doing great things, a church that has a lot of problems and a lot of challenges, both internal and external. And the church had grown very quick under Paul's shepherding, but in his absence, they also struggled with a lot of behaviors that would get us on the 10 o'clock news with Marvin. But Paul kept loving them and kept encouraging them and kept calling them out of their brokenness and sin. Paul's care for the church wasn't always received well. They were often pretty mean-spirited to him. They treated him pretty poorly. And in chapter 15 of his letter, Paul actually has to give a defense for his ministry to them. Listen and see if we can pick out what Paul says in response to this nope statement. Paul says this, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preach to you. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you, if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve, and after that, seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it, is, it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. Did you catch it? Did you catch it, Southern Hills? Uh, after all these reminders, after God, all that God had done through Paul's message of Jesus to them, after the resurrection story and Paul's own acknowledgement of his unworthiness, he says this, I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. wonder how Peter felt about that. But don't miss out on the type of work that Paul mentions. I worked harder, but it was who? God who was working through me by his grace. There it is. 
We can do nothing without God, but without God, we can do nothing. Paul understood that he couldn't pick himself up by his own bootstraps. He knew that it was God who helped him even be able to do anything that could happen. He knew that, it was, it, that if it was to be, it could never be up to me. He knew that he was 100% dependent upon the grace of the God of the universe. He also knew that sitting back and not being engaged was never going to be the way God worked. He, like the ants, he knew that like the ants, we stand and take possession of the grace God has given us so that we can bless the world around us. He knew that a people who only wait will miss out on what God is doing. Beloved, the biggest problem with this self-help mantra of if it's got to be, it's up to me, or God helps those who help themselves, is that these are graceless statements. They not only rely only on me or you to advance, but they omit the very one who makes it all possible. These self-made lies are invitations not to becoming the youiest version that God intends. They actually make you less you. They make you into something fake and processed. They make you into a shell of the one God has created you to be. And it's this lesser you, this self-made, graceless being that the world around us is taking note of and wondering, hey, where's the beef? Where is what is real in you and in me? Where is the living example of Christ in us? The world needs the answers of this loving and living God to be lived out in you and me. They don't need more Oprah or feel-good movies. They need the real deal. Someone who lives because of grace and in response to grace. There's one more thing. Not only will you not hear God helps those who, God, who, who help themselves in Scripture, what you will find if you read this book is just the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves. Oh, thanks be to God. God enters into the story of those who admit when they're bankrupt. God tends to invite others into the action of seeking out the least and the last and the lost. It seems pretty clear from these pages of scripture that God likes to use those youiest versions of his children to seek out people who just can't do it anymore. He seems to invite those of us to help others who are stuck. He seems to say that those of us who have experienced grace to go out and shower limitless grace on those around us to those who need it most. So Christian, when the world says, where's the beef? Where's the evidence of God and you and me? Well, look no further than the hands in front of you. The hands in front of you that have been, in, that have been indwelt with the very grace of the God of the universe. The God who stepped in and offered life when we didn't deserve it. If you're like me and you're a recovering control freak, hi. I want to invite you to know that it's not up to you. It's not up to you. Because the grace of the God of the universe is already at work. Isn't that awesome? What are we going to do with it, though? That's the next question. There is a world that is outside of these doors that is expecting and anticipating a bunch of people who have been drenched in the grace of the living God. To show them, God, will you do it? 
Will you do it? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment that we can share with you, and we thank you for the grace that is just unparalleled and amazing, marvelous grace that reaches down deep in and rescues us from the pit of our own self. Lord, I thank you that this half-truth that is so often quoted to you or to your word is, well, it's not true. But instead, you pour out this grace upon each and every one of your children. You invite us to know that you've already made a way. And if that wasn't enough, God, then you, get, you invite us to go about that work of extending grace, of sharing grace, of showering grace, of puddling grace wherever we go so that others will see the real. They'll, they'll be able to see you in us. So Lord, I pray this morning, whether it's a control freak or whether it's someone who has become a little idle, that you would, you would um, drench us this morning in your presence in such a way that we will know your grace. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to go and to lead this place and to be the church. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the greatest gift that's ever been given to the world. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.